Isaiah chapter 42. I'm going to pick up in verse 1. It says this. You know, before I go there, I, I was listening to, and Ashley, maybe you can find it. Um, there's something of verse in that last song that we sang that said, Jesus turned, turned his face or fixed his eyes somewhere. I don't know if you can find that. I lost it. But as I was listening to that song and I was reading, it reminded me of a verse that we're going to look at today. I'm just going to read it. It stood out. It was really cool. Uh, it's Isaiah 50, verse 7, says this, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. There was this verse in Isaiah 50, and I remember as we were singing that last song, I don't think they found it, which is uh, unfair to put them on the spot like that. But there was this one line in that song that we're singing to Jesus, that we're worshiping, praising Jesus, and it's about Jesus' turn and setting his face towards what he has in front of him. And Isaiah proclaimed that would be. But Jesus, your face was set, it says. Your face was fixed on what you had to do. And as we sang that song just a minute ago, I was reminded of a verse we're going to see today. I wasn't going to expand on it, but it just resonated with me. So let that, let that be kind of an intro to Isaiah. Things that happen with Jesus are embedded in Isaiah, which was written 800 years before Jesus was born. The very things we proclaim today Isaiah proclaimed in advance. That's the power of the message of Isaiah almost 3,000 years ago, was that it told about Jesus to come, about what God was doing in Christ ahead of time so that we would know that it is God, so that we would know that Jesus is the one God sent. Back to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I want you to listen to the pronoun. So we're talking about my servant. He says, behold my servant, right? I will up at my chosen. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. As God is telling through the man Isaiah, telling the people of someone to come, he begins to narrow down this servant into a he, a him, a person, a man, who will ultimately be revealed in Jesus. So just as a starting point, the servant of God, here's a note for you. Isaiah proclaims the servant of God that will bring about all that God has promised. Throughout Isaiah's 66 chapters, God proclaims Jesus so clearly that this Old Testament book has been nicknamed the fifth gospel. I tell you this for a reason. Isaiah so clearly depicts Jesus his birth, his life, his ministry, his focus, his teachings, his promises, and ultimately his death and resurrection. Isaiah does this so clearly hundreds of years before it happens that it is irrefutable to look at Isaiah and say that God was not in this. It is amazing to see what Isaiah says, obviously God's words through a man named Isaiah, Hundreds of years in advance, one of the very things, and I've mentioned this before, one of the very things we have proof of is that an entire scroll of Isaiah was buried after, I think it was an earthquake, buried in caves that were discovered in the 1950s, the Qumran tablets or the Dead Sea Scrolls, that an entire copy of Isaiah was buried at least 200 years before Jesus was born. Now imagine that. Imagine God telling so articulately and clearly who Jesus is, what Jesus would do, how he would die, all these things, the message he would proclaim. Imagine that being so clear. God is saying, listen, when this happens, you will know it's me. 
God does this. No one else, no religion, no faith, no one else does this. No one tells the future and then makes it happen so that we can know that we can trust in God. So this is God's servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It's my favorite line in this chapter right here. That a bruised weed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. It's talking about how Jesus will not come and crush the weak, but actually he comes for the weak. And that doesn't have to be physically weak or physically poor. It doesn't have to be those things. But I know when I came to faith, I was at the end of myself. I had nothing else to offer. Maybe when you came to faith, maybe you remember that moment where just kind of everything had hit bottom. Maybe you just run out of your effort, your attempts, your wisdom, your outcomes, your decisions. Your decisions had gotten you to the broken place, the painful place you were in. And knowing that you had nothing else to offer, there was Jesus. And that reminds us that no matter if we are physically weak or economically weak or socially weak, whatever it might be, that Jesus meets us in that place. And he's not there to break the weak, but he is there to uphold us when we are weak. And so he says, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, God says. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. God speaking about his servant, to his servant, to Jesus. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison who sit, those who sit in darkness." obviously a passage that reminds me of where I come from, right? That God is here to set prisoners free. Now that can be a literal prison or that can be how we get imprisoned to our own sins. That can be the very things that trap us in life, an addiction, a habit, a problem, a debt, a something, or it can literally be God setting free a prisoner. But he says, I've come to open the eyes of people, to liberate them, to heal them, So here are, and here's a note for you, two purposes of God's servant. Jesus is a promise of redemption and hope to all nations. He says, listen, I have come as a light to the nations. This isn't for one people group or another people group. This is for all nations. And that God will open their eyes to see him and unbind anyone imprisoned by their sins. Those are the the two things that God is saying about this servant. That he will come and be a, a savior to all nations. And that he will lift up the weak, open the eyes of the blind, free the imprisoned. That that's who Jesus is. So hundreds of years before Jesus enters into human history, God begins to proclaim through the mouth of Isaiah who Jesus will be. Verse 8, I am the Lord, says God, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. If you want to kind of turn the page to Isaiah 49, I want to just finish with this. He says, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God is saying, listen, I tell you in advance, hundreds of years in advance. I tell you with great detail 
so that when it takes place, you will know it is me. There is no way, it is statistically impossible for all the predictions of who Jesus would be to come true other than miraculously being who God says he is. So Jesus enters into human history and fulfills literally 400 plus prophecies about him, told hundreds, hundreds, sometimes more than a thousand or thousands of years in advance, fulfilling all these things so that we might know that God is true, that God is God and that there is no other, that there is one God, and that salvation comes through one Savior, Jesus Christ, that our faith is to be in Him. Isaiah 49, verse 1, it says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, He named my name. So now this servant of God, seven chapters later, is beginning to speak. And at some points we'll see God speak to Jesus and Jesus speak to God. This is before Jesus enters into human history, before he puts on flesh and becomes human. And so through Isaiah, we get a glimpse at this. And this is another prophecy about Jesus' birth. The most famous one comes in Isaiah chapter 7 where it says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God, God begins telling how Jesus will even be born, that there will be a miraculous birth. A virgin shall bear a child. The very thing we proclaim every year at Christmas is often Isaiah 7:14, or the fulfillment of it in the gospels, that a virgin conceives and Jesus is the, is the product of, of a miraculous pregnancy. So God begins to tell these, these very descriptive details of who Jesus will be. Verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Probably have some of these, these verses probably have some allusion to the escaping into Egypt when Herod was persecuting young children. But there's something really important I want to point out to you, and it's the use of Israel in this context. There are at least, I think only, but let's say at least four uses of the word Israel. Israel is a term that means governed by God. Israel began as a man named Jacob who was born twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob entered into life, the younger of two twins, and was an absolute con artist. He conspired together with his mom to burn his brother and rip off his dad. So that's Jacob, right? He goes on to then, uh, on the run from his brother, uh, marry this woman. His father-in-law burns him and kind of hustles him. And then he does it back. And then eventually he leaves. He's being chased out by his own father-in-law. Jacob literally means heel catcher, which was kind of a, an, an idiom for con artist. So that's who Jacob is. On the run, now, Jacob, nowhere really to return because he can't go home because of his brother and he can't go back to his wife's family because of what he did there. On the run, he is really just struggling with his own faith. Who is God? Who is he? And in, this, in the middle of this night, he has this vision or dream or takes place or whatever happens. We're told the story of, of Jacob wrestling with God, literally wrestling with a man in the middle of a night, this whole thing that takes place until Jacob finally submits after a hip goes out of place. Jacob finally gives in and God tells him, now you're mine. I'm going to call you Israel, which means governed by God. So no longer are you Jacob, the con artist, but now you're Israel, meaning governed by God. Now, 
Israel, the man, ends up becoming a nation as he has several kids and uh, all these things take place. He becomes a large nation. So it becomes the nation of Israel, which often includes also the nation of Judah that comes later. Um, and, and it becomes a people group, the Jewish people. There's another one in the New Testament, as Romans, written by Paul, says, not all Israel is Israel. So not all national Israel is Israel, like governed by God. So there's also a spiritual Israel, which is typically seen as the church today. Then there's a fourth Israel, and it comes out of Isaiah, that Israel promised, the one promised to be governed by God, is Jesus. So the name Israel, meaning governed by God, could be a human being, it could be a nation, it could be a church or the, the larger church, or it could be Jesus. Now, how do we know? It's actually really clear. As we read through it, the context tells you exactly who it is. The man Israel makes sense, right? The nation Israel makes sense. Israel in Romans, where it says not all Israel is Israel, if you understand it, and that makes sense. And then there's this, Israel who is a he, who is perfect, who is God's servant, and you'll see as this unfolds. Verse 4, but I, so let me read that again. Verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and his quiver he hid me away. So that's Jesus speaking, talking about what God has done for him, protecting him, and he said to me, you are, so this is now God speaking to Jesus, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. As he says to a person, it's Jesus. So we'll see that. Now we'll watch as it becomes a nation down here. It'll make sense, I promise. Verse four, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. I imagine this, I don't know this for sure, but as we read through this, these are the words of Jesus written ahead of time. And I imagine this to be a piece of Jesus' prayer life, if you will. That Jesus in his, in his struggles to achieve what God has called him to, and in the pain of being human and being oppressed, uh, being betrayed by people and pursued by religious leaders, I imagine this to be a prayer of Jesus. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. As Jesus prays in his human nature, he can be frustrated. We see him on the night as he's betrayed. This is God, if any other way is possible, let me do it another way, but not my will be done, God, your will be done. We see ultimately a submission to God, but we see human struggles in Jesus as well. Verse 5, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So if it's Jesus continuing, continuing to speak, which we know what it is, and he's talking about Jacob and Israel. Listen to the language here. To bring Jacob. Now, remember, Jacob was the man when he was not following God. Israel was the same man when he was following God. To bring Jacob back to him, so bring the ones not following back, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Those who are following be gathered. So throughout Scripture, as it talks about the nation of Israel, it also talks about that nation when they're being obedient as Israel. Now, this isn't every time it uses the term Israel for the nation, but oftentimes when they're being disobedient, God calls them Jacob. In other words, you're like your great, 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 great father who was a carnar. You're just missing the point. But sometimes you get it together and you're governed by God. So Jesus says that his job is to gather back people that are not following God and gather together those that are. Verse 6, 
He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So same thing, nation. I will make you as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. The preserved of Israel, meaning the nation, gathering Jacob, the disobedient. I will make you a light to the nations, though. You will go beyond this people. You will be a savior to all nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So here's a note for you. God's eternal plan in Christ is this. God reiterates that the promise that Jesus is a light to the nations and not just one nation or group. God's plan for us is that we share the redemption we have found in Jesus with those around us. All throughout scripture, God is calling the people who know him, who follow him, the church that bears Jesus' name, depending on when you're reading in scripture, whoever it is, God is continually calling them to share their faith with those around them, that they would tell others of the hope, of the joy, of the healing, of the redemption they have found in Jesus, in God. That that message of good news should not be kept to ourselves. And so a light to the nations is a term given to the Savior, to Jesus, that he would be a message, a light to the entire world. Skip down a few verses to Isaiah 50. In verse 4, Jesus continuing to speak. Verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Here's another purpose given to Jesus as he enters into flesh, that he would declare God more fully. It says that the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. There's an incredible verse in Hebrews chapter 1. It says this, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So, long ago, many ways, many people, God used men like Isaiah, who we're studying. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, Hebrews, in in the opening verses of Hebrews... It talks about how God used to speak through men proclaiming Christ to come, but then Jesus entered into history. Jesus became flesh, and Jesus spoke that we might know God far more clearly. Hebrews is a book or a letter written to a group of Jewish Christians explaining really how the Old Testament just talked about Jesus. The very thing we're doing today, it's explaining to Jewish Christians how those prophets really We're speaking about Christ to come. Verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. There's some obvious parallels here to the Gospels as we listen that Jesus' back will be struck that his beard will be pulled. If you're familiar with the gospel stories, you know all this takes place as Jesus is falsely accused and arrested and condemned and then mocked, abused, beaten, crucified, and dies. So the servant suffers. This is what Isaiah is talking about, a suffering servant. Here's a note for you. Most people miss Jesus while he was alive because they expected a triumphant king or a military hero. Jesus entered into human history. Jesus came and was abused and disgraced for our sin and took our penalty on himself. So when 
2,000 years ago when Jesus was born, and when those who were around him, the religious elite and the scholars and all those people, they were, they were not expecting a, a, a Galilean peasant, a guy from a poor family who would grow up and give his life as a, as a substitute for our sin. They were anticipating a king, a Jewish king, a reigning hero, a military victor. That's not who he was. And so many, most, almost everyone in his day missed him, except for a small group of people. Christianity then exploded from that small group of people who followed Jesus. That when Jesus rose from the dead, hundreds saw him and converted to following him, including Jesus' family, who, if you can imagine, just thought Jesus was average. He was their brother or son or something. So most people miss Jesus. And I think that's important for us today too, because most people miss Jesus today for some of the same reasons. See, the gospel is simple that God created you and loves you. God created me and loves me. And he designed us to be worshipers of his. And that doesn't mean just what we do when we're singing with the band here, that our lives bring glory to God, that everything we do proclaims God. But you and I all know we, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of that, that we have all gone our own way instead of the way God created us to be. And that sin severed our relationship with God. So Jesus enters into human history to restore that relationship, to cover our sin, to forgive our sin. The Bible says that, that the wages of sin are, are death and that, that either we will die or we will come under the death of Christ for forgiveness. So Jesus comes and gives his life for us that we might be forgiven. He is buried that, that, that the promise would be complete. He raises from the dead, resurrects back to life where he is alive today obviously in heaven, as God, as Lord, as King, as Savior. Jesus was that. And so Jesus gives us this promise that, listen, there's nothing you can do. You're not good enough. You're sinful. You're broken. You're weak. You're in need of a Savior. It, a Savior comes that word saving, like that we need saving. Well, if we were strong, if we were able, we wouldn't need saving. But that we are weak and incapable is what the gospel says, that we are dead in our sins and in need of new life. And Jesus gives that new life, but he reminds us that all we can do is submit to him, that we, we can ask, that we can be assured that when we ask, he forgives us and gives us new life. But so many people today are looking for something different, something that they can look to when things are hard, but not when things are good. Someone they can look to to get wisdom, but really can make their own decisions go their own way. And we all struggle with that right? Jesus is different than most are looking for. He's the way people are looking for, but he is different. He, he calls us to die to ourselves, not glorify ourselves. And, and sometimes that flies in the face of our American citizen rights kind of thing where we, we are endowed with rights from our creator. It's a constitution, not a Bible. But that in that, there's nothing wrong with that, but knowing that it's not about me. In America, everything is about me, that I, I do because I want. In fact, we've lost a sense that America used to have that we exist for a greater good, that we exist for the plurality. So with that gone, we're even further away from our biblical calling to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus. Revelation says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to God and priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. It is to Jesus who frees us from the sins that we commit, from Jesus who frees us from the penalty caused by our sins. 
the things that we do often cause the life that we experience, whether that be an addiction and we end up with health struggles or we go on a spending spree and then now we're saddled with the debt or you commit a crime and you go to jail. Whatever it might be, we live in the repercussions of our sins, but there's also the spiritual repercussions of what we do. And Jesus takes that away, that Jesus covers our worst decisions so that we can be defined by him and not our worst decisions. I, I, I think I exhibit that I'm not defined by who I was so many years ago, but more defined by Jesus now. Not perfectly, completely imperfectly, but that today I'm more defined by Jesus than I used to be. And I hope in another decade or two decades or three decades that I will be even more defined by Jesus, that we will all be more defined by Christ than by ourselves. Verse 7, but the Lord God helps me, he continues, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. There's that verse that I read from earlier that we sang in that song, that Jesus sets his face towards what he is called to do. He continues, verse 8, he who vindicates me is near, who will contend with, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Jesus portrays utter dependence upon God. Yes, Jesus is God in human flesh, but he doesn't depend on that. He lives the life that we're called to live of dependence on God. Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. There's that call. Let, let him who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. I, I would ask you this today. Have you done that? Have you just reached out and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. Like, Jesus, help me to follow you. Forgive my sin. Help me. Give me your spirit that you promised to those who are found in you. Let me live for you. If you're a Christian already, if you've made that confession of faith, if you've been baptized and you would identify yourself as a Christian, then I would ask you this. Have you done that this week? Have you done that today? Have you said, okay, I depend on you, God. Here's Jesus saying, I'm dependent upon God. Not on me, not on my strength, not on my power, not even on anything around me, but dependent upon God. There's that extension of a call to you to remind you and I that daily we must turn to Jesus. Turn the page to Isaiah 52, 13. This is where we were on Good Friday just a few weeks ago. We will wrap up with this section here. Verse 13 says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now this is God speaking again, proclaiming who Jesus will be. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That is talking both about his death and his resurrection. Verse 14, As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, talking about how badly Jesus was beaten before he was crucified. Verse 15, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. God begins to unpack details about what Jesus will accomplish for us. Isaiah 53, verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Again, there's that constant question. The Bible constantly asks us that question. Are you dependent upon Jesus? 
Who has believed and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has not just said he believes, but, but lives as if Jesus is alive in them? Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Really, Jesus was normal, average. He didn't walk around with the light going out of his head like we see in pictures, right? He was normal. He was an everyday kid from a poor village, from a poor family, from a poor region, a nobody on the outside. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom mid hid their, men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus had to be rejected for salvation to be fulfilled in him. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. As Isaiah again proclaims the crucifixion, clearly the piercing of the nails, that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that he bore our penalty on him and endured God's wrath on our behalf. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus took the penalty of all our sin. All of us, like sheep, have turned away. And I, we don't have to know a lot about sheep, but they would clearly run away easily. And that we have all run away, that we all sin, that we all wander, that we all do wrong things. And Jesus took that penalty. It says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth, reminding us that Jesus willingly died for us. That Jesus didn't fight it, he didn't argue, he didn't defend himself, that Jesus silently went before his falsely accused, falsely condemned situation and took this willingly for you and I. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Jesus was the sinless sacrifice. There's all kinds of rich things in here about whose tomb he was buried and all kinds of things that come true. But hear this. Jesus was our sinless sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for all of humanity. God in flesh died for us. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Not only did Jesus do this willingly, but it was God's will to sacrifice his son for us. There was no other way for God to cover our sin without losing us. So God willingly laid down a sacrifice of his son. Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. Two more verses. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
the righteous one, my servant, God, talking about Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. There's a great passage also in the book of Romans. It says, by one man's sin, meaning Adam, that all were made sinful, and by one man's righteousness, meaning Christ, all were made righteous. That if you are in Christ, you are made righteous. You're not just sinful and forgiven and, and corrupt and broken, but loved, but you are made righteous. That in Christ, we are found to be new. Verse 12, we'll finish here. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It gives us that last picture as Isaiah 53 winds up the passage about the suffering servant, the, the clearest depiction about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus and the, the things leading up to him dying on a cross. It also finishes with this, that Jesus is alive, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven, making petition or praying for us, his church, for you and for me in Christ Jesus sits and talks to God on our behalf. What an amazing impression, what an amazing image to leave us with as it talks about the work being completed by the suffering servant, by our Savior in Christ, finishing the work God gave him to do, willingly go to the cross to suffer and die for us. It reminds us that that's not the completion of the story, that the resurrection is where we get our new life, that we eagerly anticipate, as we talked about last week, a day when Jesus returns and rules and reigns and makes everything broken here healed and right, makes everything broken here inside of us healed and right, that we get to eagerly look forward to a day when we're not defined by the sin of the world, the brokenness of the world, or we're not defined by viruses and economies, that, that we are defined only by Christ because Christ rules and reigns with us. I'll close with this. The servant of God, the very thing that Isaiah has been proclaiming, Jesus has been the plan of God all along. God proclaimed Christ in the garden. The sacrificial system foreshadowed him. The law foreshadowed him too. The prophets told of him in great detail. Only Jesus could have fulfilled these 400 plus promises of God. Isaiah proclaims Christ clearly. God told of Christ in advance that you and I could know Jesus is the way to God. God told of him in advance so that we would know that we would have proof that Jesus is the one, that we could academically sit down and follow through the story and verify that these things came true in Christ that you would know that your, that your faith and your salvation is secure because of who Jesus is and how God proclaimed it in advance. Let's pray. God, as we gather today, we gather digitally, which we want to be together in person, but you've allowed us to gather digitally, which is such a, a great opportunity, it's such a great privilege that's allowed us to gather with others from further distances apart. That's allowed those who are homebound and maybe can't come to church to really feel more inclusion in the church as we're all kind of homebound. But all that pales to what you've done in Jesus. Whether we gather or whether we stay separate, what you have done in Christ for us. Jesus, what you have done on our behalf. Holy Spirit, what you reveal to us causes all that to fade away and pale 
in comparison to your goodness, your presence, your salvation. As we look to the Bible, we don't just read the stories of men. We read the very words of yours, God. We read your word for us. Jesus, we hear your words. We see your life. We see your death and your resurrection. We see you today. Let that strengthen and encourage us through your spirit in our lives every day as we work through hard times or good times. Let us press in deeper, surrendering to you, God. Jesus, we love you. It's because of you that we're here. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.